Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. Down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus. Uhuru, and welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Mwambi Tongu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. Protests against police brutality in the African country of Nigeria continue to grow, drawing the attention of the whole world, with expressions of support coming from human rights groups, foreign governments, and celebrities such as musicians Beyonce, Rihanna, Chance the Rapper, and Kanye West, along with Manchester United soccer star Odeon Igalo, actor John Boyega, and Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. The protests began October 7th, demanding the disbanding of Nigerian police special anti-robbery squad, known as SARS. SARS officers are notorious for carrying out extortion, robbery, torture, and murder of Nigerian citizens. Their tactics include targeting and detaining young men for cybercrime or being online fraudsters simply on the evidence of them owning a laptop or smartphone, and then demanding excessive bail fees to let them go. The Nigerian government dissolved SARS on October 11th, but quickly replaced it with the Special Weapons and Tactics Team. On October 19th, it was reported that protesters stormed a prison in Benin City, freeing over 200 prisoners. On October 20th, Nigerian police and military opened fire and killed an unknown number of unarmed protesters in the Leki district of Lagos in what is now called the Leki Massacre. Since then, protests have continued to grow. Police stations and trucks throughout the country have been targeted. Shops, malls, warehouses have been raided with the business of prominent politicians targeted. Government warehouses have been ransacked in the central city of Jos and in neighboring Bukuru city as well as Adamawa, Toraba states, and the capital city of Ajuba. Lagos, Nigeria's largest city and its financial hub, has been brought to a standstill. A 24-hour curfew has been imposed. Lagos is home to 21 million people, three times the population of New York City. On Sunday, Nigeria's chief of police ordered the immediate mobilization of all police resources to put an end to the protests. On today's episode of the People's War Radio Show, we will talk with African activists and educators about the situation in Nigeria and its implications for the world economy and for the unification of African people worldwide. Our first guest is Louise Kinshasa. Louise Kinshasa is the Secretary General of the African Socialist International. Since the 1980s, Secretary General Louise has organized African people extensively throughout Europe and Africa where he has built the African working-class-led movement for African liberation. S.G. Louise was born and raised in Congo and speaks seven languages. He is now based in London and works as an educator and organizer in African communities throughout Europe and the continent of Africa. S.G. Louise has come to be known as Mwalimu, a title meaning teacher in Swahili. He writes a monthly column in the Burning Spear newspaper titled the Kinshasa International. He also does regular live stream broadcasts to the African nation on Facebook in English and in French. 
Our next guest is Professor Olafemi Tawel. He holds a PhD in philosophy from the University of California, Los Angeles. Tao is an assistant professor in philosophy at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Born in the United States, his family is from the vicinity of Lagos, Nigeria. He is currently writing a book entitled Reconsidering Reparations. Reconsidering Reparations brings a new philosophical argument for reparations and explores links with environmental justice. He also writes public philosophy, including articles exploring intersections of climate justice and colonialism. Welcome, S.G. Lawazi, and welcome, Professor Olafemi. Uhuru S.G. Lawazi, the NSARS movement, what is that? To some, this is a new movement, but its roots are three years old. Can you explain the movement for the listeners and its origins with the African working class of Nigeria? Uhuru, uh, comrade uh, Mwambi, Uhuru, comrade Masimola, uh, thank you for having me on the Black Power FM uh, radio. Uh, this uh, movement, uh, you know, it seems like uh, for many people, uh, they just discover uh, a mass movement uh, in Nigeria. But people have to know that uh, Nigeria has been, uh, just like all of Africa, but Nigeria has been uh, in a crisis for some times now. Particularly, you remember uh, the collapse of uh, the price of oil uh, from 2014, particularly, you know, in the last, say, four or five years, the government's of Nigeria depends on oil. It's an oil com- economy. Over 65% of uh, revenues of government depend on oil. So if the price of the oil collapses, what it does, it really just shortcuts uh, the government uh, budget. This, this doesn't say that before the collapse of price of the oil, the Nigerian government was all right. No, the revenue of the oil uh, is around 40 billion some statistics I've seen say $45 billion uh, a year. And uh, this for a population of nearly 200 million Africans. That's nothing. Because the $40 billion is for the African bourgeoisie. You know, these resources is for them. If you compare that to some of the multinational companies, uh, you will see that uh, $40 billion is nothing for uh, a country of such... Uh, I would not say large population, but significant uh, population. You also have to know since 2009, I think, there there is a crisis uh, in Nigeria in terms of uh, Boko Haram. There is war going on, uh, not not only just in Nigeria, but also outside Nigeria, Cameroon, Chad, uh, Niger, and the Nigerian government is also involved in that. Uh, in those wars, which means the budget has also uh, to pay for that. And for some sectors of the African PD bourgeoisie, wars also means business uh, for them. So basically, you have a government uh, who uh, has no uh, abilities, basically, to provide, you know, to the needs uh, of the people. And also in Nigeria, the rich the, the gap between the rich and the poor has been widening year on year. So in Nigeria, you have people who have limousines, uh, people who have private jets, and then you have people, the majority, at least 100 million, 100 million Africans in Nigeria can't afford three meals a day. They live in what you call abject poverty. So you have that reality in Nigeria today. You also have a pressure, not just, you know, people have heard of Boko Haram, but you haven't heard of other sectors population 
who are opposed to brutalities uh, in Nigeria, like the Shia community. They are regularly attacked, regularly arrested, regularly killed. And then you have the uh, what you call the SARS, uh, Soko Anti uh, Robbery uh, Brigade. They have been given, you know, a free reign, worldwide bourgeoisie refers to as carte blanche. So they can go to poor working class area, just like when they go to so-called uh, Boko Haram areas, they don't make the difference between those who are favorable uh, to Boko Haram and those who are just part of the community. You've got really just, you know, uh, killing. Uh, you, you have all this situation put together, and you should expect resistance coming from the people. And that's what you have seen in Nigeria. So I wasn't surprised. In fact, before even that, you also have strikes by some of the uh, spontaneous and some by the trading union uh, organization because the uh, standard of living has plummeted uh, as a result of all these looting of uh, public funds, uh, war in Nigeria, coll- uh, collapse of the uh, of price of oil, and uh, tax evasion. Nigeria is one of the places where the petty bourgeoisie is always stealing from the public funds and nobody really pays for that. And uh, you have all this uh, together. You have a spontaneous struggle happening in Nigeria on a regular basis against lack of oil uh, because people in Nigeria, we produce oil, but we have to queue up to get oil we produce because we don't refine it. Most of the oil we produce have to go first outside uh, the country and then come back to us. And then we pay more for our own oil than the people don't have oil. What's happening today is really a, a result of uh, all these neo-colonial uh, contradictions. And the anti-SARS uh, demonstration is just like the sparks, you know, that are allowed all the people basically to converge uh, in those uh, demonstrations. Professor Olufemi, are you okay with being called Femi? Yeah, Femi's fine. Okay, Femi, your family is from Nigeria, Europe, if I'm correct. What are you hearing about the NSARS movement from people back home? What are you hearing as well from people from Nigeria within the U.S.? Yeah, I'm hearing pretty much the same kinds of things, both from uh, family who still live in Yoruba land and also people in the diaspora, which is kind of equal parts excitement, but also disgust because... The problem with Nigerian policing has been this bad for quite some time, as long as anybody seems to remember. And the impunity with which Nigerian police extort and assault Nigerian people is just truly shameful. Femi, these protests are in direct rejection of the presidency of Muhammadu Buhari. A little birdie named Matamela told me that alongside of being a professor, you're also a musician. If I'm correct, Buhari imprisoned the beloved African revolutionary musician, Fela Kuti. Who is Fela Kuti and why is he important for this moment? So he was an incredible musician, multi-instrumentalist, vocalist. He made very popular music, not just popular to Nigerians, where he's you know, still a legend as far as I know, but he had a worldwide following and he came from a political background. So his mother, Fumilayo Ransom Kuti, was one of the most important 
activists in Nigerian history. She started the Abelkuta Women's Union, which was instrumental in fighting colonial taxation and fighting um, various kinds of British imperial exploitation and advancing um, Nigerian feminism. Um, I believe that eventually became the Nigerian Women's Union. Fela was very politically inclined from the beginning, and his music became more and more critical of the government. And at one point, they raided the compound where he and his mother lived and actually threw Fumilayo Ransom Kuti out of a window, and she died days later. So the regime murdered her, and this is part of the history that we're inheriting in the present. Fela Kuti used his music to expose the brutality of neocolonial and imperialist rule in Africa with songs like Coffin for Head of State, ITT, Beasts of No Nation, Zombie, Yellow Fever, and many more. Fela rejected the colonially imposed tribalism in Nigeria, specifically in Africa more generally. For this reason, he chose to sing in West African Pidgin, a language universally understood with similarities to Creole languages spoken in the Americas instead of his ethnic language of Yoruba. In Coffin for Head of State, Fela outlines the February 18, 1977 raid of his compound, named the Kalakuta Republic by more than 1,000 Nigerian soldiers, under the orders of neocolonial leader General Olusegun Obasanjo. As Professor Tawo notes, the soldiers threw Fela's mother, Funmilayo Ransom Kuti, through a second-story window. Funmilayo died the following year from the injury she sustained. On September 30, 1979, Fela led a mock funeral procession in protest of his mother's murder, 20 kilometers to the military barracks where he placed the coffin. Let's take a listen to a short clip from Fela Kuti's 1980 song, Coffin for Head of State. Waka, waka, waka. Do 
That was Fela Kuti, coughing for head of state, 1980. Siam Kuti, son of Fela Kuti, recently came out against some of the NSAR's demands. Siam criticized the demand to pay officers more as an alternative to police corruption. It's like we're fighting for police to live a better life. It's not the duty of Nigerians to fight for police to have better salaries. If police don't like their salaries and welfare, let them strike and protest, Sion stated. He added, if money day stop corruption, why do our politicians steal their teeth? Everybody is being extorted at every level in this country every day. And he concluded that hashtag five for five is useless demands and that no one can drag him to the current agitation because the demands are not serious enough. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, just like the movement here, there's different ideological perspectives and some people are further left than others. So, you know, in the way that people might circulate like DeRay's demands in response to racist police violence in the U.S. and people who are abolitionists who might have a problem with that. I think that's the same kind of criticism he's making here. I remember seeing a video he posted recently on Instagram where he was explaining that all the politicians in Nigeria are complicit in a system of exploitation that exploits the Nigerian working class and Nigerian resources for the benefit of European elites. And I think he's just completely right about that. Um, I think his criticism that the people fighting against police repression shouldn't be doing the job of a police union, essentially, just seems like the right kind of criticism to me. And I think the point he makes about extortion being built into every aspect of um, Nigerian life and not just interactions with police is kind of the key here. You know, the people who pay the police, whether they pay them well or not, are paying them to participate in this broader system of exploitation that all is colonially organized in the way that he described on Instagram. So I think he's just right about this. S.G. On October 22nd, a senior delegation from the U.S. State Department met with Nigerian Vice President Yemi Osinbajo in the capital of Abuja to urge resolution of the conflict. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has joined the call from U.S. presidential candidate Joe Biden and numerous celebrities for an end to the violence in Nigeria. Why is the West so concerned about the destabilization of Nigeria? This is a very good question because uh, people need to know the United States government and uh, other governments, British and others, but particularly the, uh, Nigerian gov- uh, the United States government is a part of power in Nigeria since the independence of Nigeria. That's what people need to know. There is no way in the world the Nigerian government 
was able to take a uh, decisive decision on a strategic uh, question. It's like they couldn't sell certain material to the Soviet Union because the United States was opposed uh, to that. Uh, the Nigerian government uh, was opposed to Kwame Nkrumah. And in 1963, at the founding of, uh, of the Organization for African Unity, the uh, Nigerian government, when the uh, settler, the white settler in Rhodesia, uh, decided to declare a unilateral declaration of independence, what they call UDI, uh, to create the uh, Rhodesian state, a settler state in Rhodesia. Rhodesia is what they call Zimbabwe today. Who broke the ranks from uh, the coalition of African people bourgeoisie, which was opposed to that Nigeria uh, government? And uh, just you know, just to to give you uh, uh, some of these examples. So when Pompey goes there. When the uh, different representatives of the United States goes, they include the, the U.S. Uh, ambassador. They're just basically saying, basically, or doing what they've they always uh, been doing. They don't want a mobilization of the people that will allow the people uh, to develop, to get uh, deeper, to radicalize in Nigeria. They don't want that. They are happy to have the Nigerian government uh, involved in uh, things like war against Boko Haram, but they don't want to see a mass movement that they don't control in Nigeria. And uh, this not just in Nigeria, that, this happens across the board, across Africa. You have, uh, if it's not Mike Pompey himself, but you have the, the U.S. ambassadors. You also have the multinational companies. For example, most of the oil companies are in Nigeria, they have their own private police. So this just to you know to show how entrenched they are. So what we're seeing uh, is no a new phenomenon. It's not the beginning. They have always done that. And I can give you uh, more example. When I say entrenched, what I'm trying to say is what you're looking at when you hear Mike Pompey and uh, the other re representative that um, went to Abuja. You're looking at a pattern that started from the independence that has not stopped. Uh, I'll get you just one uh, uh, example. In May 1960, just four months before Nigeria became independent, U.S. scholarships for Nigerian undergraduates were established by 21 leading American universities. In October 1961, OI University undertook the training of Nigerian teachers. In January 1963, Hawaii University's teacher education program was introduced in Nigeria. In December 1963, same year, Michigan State University received a grant of $2,104,000 for a two-year continuance of development of University of Tsuka in Nigeria. A Ford Foundation grant helped establish an institute of administration at the University of Ife in Western Nigeria. In 1964, Aid Agency for International Development funds but partially supported the University of Nigeria. And I can go on and on and on from 60 up to, to this present moment, just to show you the involvement of the United States imperialism in Nigeria. So when you see Mike Pompey going there, of course, they don't want to see a resistance. Uh, particularly a mass movement that might discover African internationalism. They don't want that. They don't want the people to develop their own confidence. As you, you have heard, uh, what, whatever happens in Nigeria, uh, the whole world is watching. So Africans are watching. So Africans are 
have, have already been informed uh, by what's happening in the United States. They know the struggle is back. The, the black masses are back um, on on a, on a street of uh, of the U.S. And let's see Nigeria. They are only aware in Mali, African masses on the street. They are also aware in Ivory Coast, the African masses on the street. So these are times. It's time to fight back. You know, fist up. You know, fight back. The slogan for Infidel. People might come to that conclusion that it's time. The only way now to solve to sort our problems. We have to fight back. We have to get organized, you know. And these poor people struggle, generally speaking. So you, it makes sense for United States government and the African petty bourgeoisies to intervene. Femi, your dissertation deals in a creative fashion with colonialism, shell oil, and your own family history in Nigeria. Can you elaborate on that for us? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in the U.S., um, my parents and a lot of the people that we were in community with were um, people who had recently left Nigeria. And aside from the occasional trip here or there, I didn't really know anything about the country or understand why we had left if all the Nigerians I knew were skilled professionals, right? Or many of them were, I should say. So you know, I had a fascination with trying to figure out why Nigeria had so many problems as they described it and why the U.S. was different. And so that led me to studying colonialism and that led me to the politics that I have now. Um, I remembered one of the early stories my family had told me, my mother in particular, was about fleeing the Nigerian Civil War. At that time, my mother's family lived in the East, which was... Um, attempting to secede from Nigeria. It was a harrowing story. You know, they had to leave at the drop of the dime. They had to leave a lot of their stuff behind. And at first, I thought the story was about how bad this was for my family. But I got to know the history a little bit better, know how many people died in the genocide. And I came to realize that what was more significant about that story was, you know, the fact that we were able to leave and that we had the resources to leave, not only the region that my mother's family lived in at the time, but eventually, as she got older, leave the country. And the explanation for having those resources was that um, her father, my maternal grandfather, worked for Shell Oil and so was well positioned in this multinational corporation that gave us access to the resources to avoid those kinds of death traps, essentially, that far too many people aren't in a position to avoid. And so that was a formative aspect of how I began to understand myself, my own social position, and how I began to understand the larger social system that I live in and we all live in. You are listening to The People's War Radio Show, Produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are African Socialist International, Secretary General Loezi Kinshasa, and Professor Olafemi Tawo. Beginning in the 15th century, West Africa was invaded by Portugal, the Dutch, and eventually the British. Exposing the colonial capitalist origins, initially the invaders were organized into companies, and later, various European states took direct control over the colonies. 
Femi, historians do not talk much about the theft of Africans out of Nigeria, but it is the largest region for that theft of Africans who will later become enslaved in the Americas. What links have you found between the history of slavery and colonialism in Nigeria to the history of colonization and enslavement of African people in the U.S. and throughout the Western Hemisphere? One of the things that was most interesting to me as I learned the history of this period is that we're really talking about the creation of the world, the creation of a planet-sized system of trade and politics, these things that are beginning in the 15th century. The early empires, especially the Spanish and Portuguese, are on the lookout for land and territory, but perhaps above all looking for precious metals like silver, and they expand into the Western Hemisphere, making conquests in Central and South America and North America as well, uh, much before the British got there. And they're claiming territory. Eventually, they start trading and producing significant amounts of commodities besides precious metals. And it's this trade, um, but particularly the trade for things like sugar and cotton, that builds what becomes world trade and colonialism on a global scale, that builds the wealth for it, that builds the political and military connections, that builds the um, strategic locations that the European empires use to conquer the world. And the labor that's doing it, much of it initially was um, enslavement and exploitation of indigenous peoples, um, but eventually centered around the theft and exploitation of Africans. And the place that the Portuguese set up in South America, which is now Brazil, the country of Brazil, was one of the places that was a primary location for people abducted in what is now Nigeria. And there was a particularly large wave of Yoruba people from my ethnic group and Hausa people to South America and the Caribbean in the 19th century, um, which is one of the reasons for the levels of revolt that happened throughout the Caribbean and throughout South America because of the particular martial strategies that came over to this part of the New World from um, the peoples in Africa who had been warring there. So it's actually critical to understanding both the role of the slave trade in the development of capitalism and um, global economic order, and also in the story of resistance to the slave trade that we think about what was happening on the continent of Africa, which would include Nigeria, which would include Angola, which would include what, what was called the Gold Coast, um, which would include uh, much of West African history. S.G. Loezi, could you talk about the establishment of British colonialism in Nigeria? Yes, so uh, You know, the uh, British colonialism uh, occupied the large part of the uh, West Africa, uh, which is referred today as Nigeria, which used to be called as the uh, you know, Gold Coast is Ghana, uh, you have Sierra Leone and uh, Gambia. 
these are things the main uh, territories uh, occupied by the British colonialism uh, in West Africa. We know what is the uh, significance. Facts have to point out that uh, British colonialism, because people need to go beyond the Berlin Conference, because usually a lot of people, a lot of Africans in particular, on the continent tend to think colonization began in, in 1884, 1885 at the Berlin Conference. No, it didn't, it didn't begin there. It didn't start there. What people refer to as uh, slavery or slave trade—that's colonialism. That's colonial slavery. That's colonialism. You know, and this colonialism uh, before industrialization of Europe—that's what Africans need to realize, need to uh, uh, to understand. So you have colonialism before industrialization, which means before Berlin Conference, and the Berlin Conference is basically the realization now that uh, Europe or the white nation has been industrialized. So colonialism has to change. They need more raw material to supply, to feed the industrialization of Europe. So colonization of Africa changed. That's why they had the Berlin Conference. And uh, that's not a starting point. That's a development of colonialism that started uh, in 1415, when the Portuguese captured that part of Morocco they called Ceuta uh, today. You know, that's basically uh, one thing they need to know. And uh, regarding uh, Nigeria, there's this uh, governor, colonial governor, his name is um, uh, Lugut. And uh, if you come to London, you will see most of the street, you know, have his name. He's honored, you know, uh, as a really uh, a, a colonizer that basically that the ruling class really uh, uh, appreciate. So he's the one who really uh, formulated or brought into uh, existence, the Nigeria, as we know it today, basically they brought two colonies in Nigeria uh, for the purpose of uh, initiating what they refer to uh, today as indirect rule, where the uh, British colonizers, they will go through the uh, indigenous uh, rulers, give them you know, a certain amount of uh, power so that they can uh, govern Nigeria through them. And uh, this was consolidated or reinforced after the Second World War in 1945. There is a, a, a governor, in, in, another a colonial governor known as uh, Alpha Richards. Alpha Richards uh, split Nigeria basically from what Lord Luger did. He organized Nigeria basically in three parts. Uh, you have the, uh, the north, you have the east, and the southwest. And uh, what he also did, he created what they call regional assemblies. And uh, they have subsequent constitutions, I think, after that, 51 and 53 or 54. And these constitutions basically gave uh, some power to regions, so creating the basis for regionalism, because they already began to prepare uh, for the new colonialism as we know it. Today, remember, in the uh, mid-50s, you had a Mao Mao shaking the British in Kenya. And you had uh, the struggle of uh, Kwame Nkrumah started in Ghana, just next door to Nigeria. Of course, you had uh, the, already the struggle for independence in Nigeria and other places. But the Mao Mao shook the British, you know, colonialism to its foundation. So that basically convinced the British you need to begin to prepare uh, for new colonialism now. The British also... Uh, reinforced. They really encouraged, developed, promoted tribalism, regionalism, you know, Igbo versus Aousa, Aousa versus Yoruba, Yoruba versus 
you know, flying, things like that. The British really promoted that. And you also have to, to be aware, Krumah is next door. Krumah is in Ghana. And uh, so not only they responded to Mau Mau, they're also responding to Krumah. So the British made sure whoever comes to power in Nigeria, they will be running over a loose, you know, centralized government. And also in terms of the military, the way they organize it, the most educated portion of Nigeria will be amongst the Yoruba in the southwest and amongst the Igbo in the east and other ethnicities in Nigeria. But the military powers was handed over to people in the north where they had less opportunity, where they had less uh, educated people. So they create basically a situation where power is in the end of the military, but the most educated people are from different regions. So what you're going to have, you're going to have a regional clash because you're going to have two sectors of people bourgeoisie fighting uh, for power. The one who has a military power doesn't want to share it because that's what they, they have. And then you have the discovery of oil in Nigeria. Uh, you would say by 56 or 57, Nigeria became an oil exporter uh, country. And that changed a lot. What it did, it sharpened the class struggle within the African bourgeoisie because the stakes were high. Whoever is in power is going to have access to, you know, to the dollars uh, from oil so they can loot it and uh, you know, accumulate uh, wealth and uh, secure power. And uh, so the British played on that. So they made sure uh, when they handed over our power in the 60s, and that was an arrangement that the British bourgeoisie that went to power was a pro-Britain. Uh, it was a pro-American. In fact, British signed so many documents that in favor of the United States, just four months before the independence, and all these agreements, you know, were renewed in subsequent years by the new colonial governments in power. And uh, you can say Nigeria was basically a government. The West, you know, United States in their Cold War, you know, against the Soviet Union to control Africa and the world. They had a government they can rely on because the, the British government really prepared the stage for Nigeria to be in the colonial government that will not uh, function for the benefit uh, of Africa. I have one quote because people need to see how Nigeria was uh, fabricated. Uh, I have a, a quote here by from an American professor talking about the situation basically uh, of neocolonialism. Mm -hmm. He said, by 1970, our present consumption will have doubled. Our own resources will have further diminished and we will be competing with other nations now in the process of rapid industrial growth. If we should be denied access to the raw materials of Asia, we will be seriously handicapped, handicapped. But we could still maintain our economic growth. But if we were also cut off from the apparently limitless mineral reserve of Africa, we will face formidable difficulties within a decade, even though the resource of Canada and of South America remain available to us. This gives people some idea why the British organized with the United States to maintain colonialism in Africa. The question of resources and the Nigeria definitely was a good example, a good case used against Kuma, used against African unity, and used against the struggle for liberation in Nigeria itself. I wanted to ask you about the current borders in Africa. Um, we understand that they were not created by African people themselves. So, how were these borders drawn in the first place, and why? Well, as you know, we were not in Berlin, and Berlin is not in Africa in 1885. 
you know, white power organization, state, they sat there uh, and carved up Africa like a piece of cake and uh, gave us, uh, you know, the identity we carry with us today. You know, someone, think about it, before 1885, uh, Africans in the U.S. or Brazil, in those places, with also false names, false identity, because they're no legitimate, couldn't say they, they remember Africa, but they don't remember those names of Nigeria. They don't remember those names of Burkina Faso. They don't remember those names. They are new, new entities. And, uh, but most important thing, they are colonial entities. And those borders also have created what they call countries, which are only viable to the oppressors. They are not viable for us because there is no commerce between African countries. It's insignificant, less than 20%. And when, it's, when I say less than 20%, it's not even a strategic field. Most of the economy uh, of Africa is designed to produce for outside. You know, if Nigeria produces oil, it doesn't produce oil for the rest of African countries. It produces for United States, for Britain, you know, France, now China, Japan, South Korea, it produces for them, not for us. And uh, even when there was a war in Nigeria, the Biafra War in 1966, I think uh, it was, the Igbo wanted to secede uh, from the rest of Nigeria. The French armed the Igbo. And of course, the U.S. was on the side of the federal uh, government. It was a business for them, selling weapons and things like that. And uh, basically, you can see uh, the uh, efforts even to, to create that Biafra didn't, you know, was not like uh, something the Africans took on their own. Uh, they had imperialists on the side. And the outcome will, will have been the outcome that benefits imperialists. Either way, we are now involved uh, in a struggle to remove these uh, borders because uh, what's the meaning of uh, Ivory Coast facing China with uh, one point? Uh, for five, I think, a billion people, or facing India, 1.3 billion people. Even Nigeria has less less population than India. In the, just compare the two, Nigeria under 200 million people. You know, so all these economies are non-viable economies, non-viable uh, entities. Only benefit the African petty bourgeoisie because they need that. You know, to reproduce themselves, to loot, to give themselves legitimacy to loot the national treasure. So it's non-viable uh, borders and non-viable economy because they're colonial economies. You cannot be a nation and be a, a colony at the same time. It's a contradiction. One can't exist uh, with, your, with the other. One has to go. If you want to be a nation, you have to be a free nation, free people, you know, deciding themselves of the destiny. But when you're, when you're a colony, it means that's it. You know, you don't, you don't count. So if those who count are the criminals, who are the African people bourgeoisie. Because they need that, they are happy, they are satisfied with the statue of colonized. They are satisfied with it. You know, they solve all the problems. They are in the government, they are ministers, generals, you name it. They are satisfied with it. And 60 years is just too long. This has to go. We need power. We need power. And uh, you can't achieve power, you know, just as uh, the Togolese state or Namibian state or Ghana state. It has to be a black power. And the black power is not just a business of uh, Nigerians or is a business for all black people. It's a business of the nation. If you want to exist, we're going to have a, a black nation. We must have black power. It's as simple as that. And that's how uh, you can look at anything going on in Africa, in Nigeria, in the struggle. You begin to look for genuine forces and uh, or win honest forces you know, to the correct line. We have to be fighting for black power.
So the borders is an obstacle to where lost black power. So if we need a black power, the borders has to go because our numbers, that's a critical element building uh, a genuine uh, uh, black power. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are African Socialist International Secretary General Louise Kinshasa and Professor Olufemi Taiwo. Uhuru Eshi Louise. This year, on October 1st, Nigeria celebrated the 60th anniversary of its formal or flag independence from British rule. What has this meant for the African working class masses of West Africa? The uh, celebration of independence, independence, you know, is basically a, is a, is, is a party. It's a party for the African people which I see. And it's not a party for us because we have no reason to celebrate. Although we are the ones who were mobilized, we are the ones who died uh, for even the white power to concede indirect rule. Because uh, if it was just the Akinfidi bourgeoisie, you know, the white power wouldn't change anything. If it was not to the Mao Mao, the African workers around the, uh, uh, the continent, around the world, you know, no change would have uh, happened. So for the African working class, the 60 years, it's an absolute proof, evidence that neocolonialism cannot be reformed. Neocolonialism has to go. You know, the resistance born out of the struggle against uh, SARS, that has to be celebrated because it means we have a chance because we are in emotion. We can see our strength. We can meet each other. The world also is watching and they showing support and uh, we are not alone. So we have to move forward. We go take this struggle forward, basically, which means we go struggle to be our own leaders. And that's why the uh, African internationalism is so critical. If you're listening, uh, you know anyone who is, who is in Nigeria, if he's outside uh, Nigeria, you have to win that person to African internationalism. Uh, yourself, if you're listening too, uh, you know, organized because every black person has to be organized. Femi, do you have anything you'd like to add? The important thing about the previous question is that we should notice that way before the Berlin Conference in Africa, there were centuries and centuries of European involvement on the continent. Um, it was often done by private groups that were maybe affiliated with an empire, but the method of empire building that involves formally declaring ownership over a land or a people or planting a flag and claiming it for the queen is only one way that colonialism works. And there are other ways that colonialism also works. So I think that the kinds of things that Nkrumah said in the 60s when he wrote the book Neocolonialism were uh, very prescient, very prophetic. I think that multinational corporations today, as they did in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries, direct a lot of the most important things about how social life is organized on the African continent. They say where resources go, they help decide who will be in power and who won't be in power. And I think those things are what explains whether a place is colonially managed or not. And so until, as Cabral said, 
until the people of Africa are in control of the productive forces on the continent and in control of the culture on the continent, they'll still be under colonial management. As Sheila Wazy, we keep hearing in the news the claim that the current protests in Nigeria are leaderless and organic. Is that a true assessment? And would that be a good thing if it were true? One thing is sure, the decision to fight back was not the decision of the African people bourgeoisie or the white bourgeoisie. The decision to fight back came from the workers, from the poor young workers who had enough to see their the friends, their brothers and, uh, and so on, uh, being shot, being tortured being criminalized every day, being harassed every day, being treated, you know, the way they treat black people you know, under uh, this system of uh, imperialism, you know, basically it was a rejection of uh, colonial lives. It's a rejection of colonialism. Uh, they might not have access to African internationalism. So it was them. The struggle began in the midst of a poor people. You know, we were responsible for this resistance. So it didn't come from the African people bourgeoisie or anybody else. We have to be really clear from that. It came from unorganized African working class. That's all people, you know, uh, have to be clear about. But the uh, petit bourgeoisie and other forces who are all started to the long-term interest of the African working class are the ones who are fighting because they are used to be organized to put themselves ahead of that movement. But we know the movement began as a spontaneous movement from the uh, unorganized African working class. And uh, our role basically is to call those African working class to get organized, uh, to get into conscious struggle, which basically struggle led by the most advanced revolutionary philosophy of our time, African internationalism, you know, philosophy developed by Chairman of Malichella. That's the philosophy. So we're involved in that struggle. Uh, basically, who's going to be ahead of this movement? Is it going to be the African People's Socialist Party or is it going to be the opportunist African people bourgeoisie in all organization funded by the Soros, the United States and other uh, imperialists? That's really uh, is the question. We say, let's go ahead and take the leadership. Let's go ahead and win the African working class to organization and to African internationalism. This way, people will not say it's leaderless because the struggle will be happening under uh, African internationalism. A philosophy. That's what we need to do. We need to prevent the uh, opportunists from uh, being ahead of uh, of this movement. Yes, well. Femi, one last question. What do you see as the future for Africa and for African people dispersed around the world? And do you see a growing international unity amongst African people? I think a future for Africa and African people is going to go one in two ways. One of two ways. And whether it goes the good way or the bad way depends on what we succeed in doing over these next few critical years. Right now, I'm encouraged by the fact that I do see a growing international unity amongst African people. When Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Tony McDade were shot down by police officers in the United States, there was a global response by African-descended peoples. And there's also been global response and solidarity for the NSARS movement that's happening in Nigeria now, including protests on the embassy here in D.C., in London. And so I think those kinds of things are very encouraging. But we're up against a lot 
And for me, a big aspect of things that we need to start to think about and design ways to respond to is the climate crisis. The climate crisis is going to drive very negative and very difficult to respond to impacts across the continent. And the continent has already been um, susceptible to land grabbing from elites, both foreign and domestic, which is going to mean that as people are in increasingly bad positions as far as food security and housing security and resource security goes, there's going to be increasing authoritarian control of those things, whether by capitalist elites or whether by governments or more likely a kind of combination or alliance between the two. And if you combine that with the bad projections of which part of the continent will even be habitable and how much displacement is likely to happen because of climate crisis impacts, we're looking at genocidal scenarios where many people may be displaced and many people may die depending on how well we respond to climate change from a political standpoint. And so I think if we can convert some of the good things that are going on now in terms of international unity amongst African people into a strong political force, um, and if we can bring that political force to bear on global climate policy in a way that's oriented around justice rather than the market, then I think we have a chance to not only avoid the worst impacts of climate crisis, but to actually build meaningful power for African people on the continent and off. Uhuru, uhuru, Femi. Thanks for everything. And uh, speaking of building that political force, we'll see you at the Black People's March on the White House in Washington, D.C. on November 7th. Looking forward to it. And that leads us to our last question. S.G. Louisi, as the Secretary General of the African Socialist International, you've traveled throughout the continent of Africa organizing African people. What is your program for the liberation and unification of the African nation? You know, in the party, what do we say in the party? We have an African plan, you know, African Socialist International. You know, that's, that's a plan uh, we have. And uh, our oppressors have also the African plans. Uh, but we know imperialism has only one agenda in Africa, exploitation and murder, you know, looting and murder, piaging, killing, destroying. Uh, that's the agenda in Africa. Uh, that's the process to build, you know, uh, themselves, to build uh, the white nations and our oppressor nations. So we have African Socialist International. This is the general uh, program of uh, unification of uh, black people everywhere on the planet under the leadership of African People's Socialist Party, united across the world. In every country, there should be African People's Socialist Party. We say every front uh, should be led by African People's Socialist Party, by the vanguard of the African working class everywhere. And this way, we can unify all these struggles towards uh, one struggle uh, to defeat, to overturn uh, the verdict of uh, imperialist white power so we can have a united socialist state of Africa under leadership of the African working class, so we can have black power. People really should not underestimate these uh, demand uh, for power. 
uh, there is nothing you can do without power. So power is the uh, the ability uh, for us basically to overcome our oppressions and to defend our, our successful revolution because we're going to be successful. And uh, for us to be successful, we have to come together. And uh, the unity, the, the power that comes from that unity cannot be defeated. Nobody can defeat uh, the growing African population around the planet and determined to fight to be free, to recapture our future, to recapture our continent, to recapture you know, our unity, to, to recapture everything that belongs to us. And nobody can stop us. And uh, once we succeed in putting the party on the ground, nobody can stop us. So the ASI is definitely the ultimate plan that every honest uh, African anyway should embrace, should work out, you know, how they can join, but that's what every African should embrace. Uh, outside our revolutionary unity, you know, there is nothing uh, for us. That's the only thing we have, a revolutionary unity and a revolutionary organization and a revolutionary philosophy, and victory is certain. You know, that's the only thing I can repeat myself, but ASI, that's the way forward. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today were African Socialist International Secretary General Louise Kinshasa and Professor Olafemi Taiwo. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus, or to volunteer with Project Black Ankh, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guests, African Socialist International Secretary General Louise Kinshasa and Professor Olafemi Tawo for joining us today. We would also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. We can't take no more of this alone.